Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and I'm really excited to have Dr. Richard Moore with me. Now, Dr. Richard Moore, he is an awesome scholar, but I have to admit he's also a very close friend, and he's also written this great book that I really love. It's called uh, The Writings of Oliver H. Olney, and it's published by Greg Coford Books, and it's just a terrific book. I had never even heard of Oliver Olney before that before Rich had told me about him. And it's a fascinating story. So Rich, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I appreciate being here. Yeah, thanks. So before we jump in to talk about Oliver, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I was raised in Utah, uh, about in a little town just uh, south of Provo, which is where BYU is. Uh, grew up in a uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so I am a Mormon. And uh, I graduated from Brigham Young University, uh, received my uh, master's degree in history from BYU, and my doctorate in education from the University of the Pacific in California. Uh, I'm married, have uh, three kids, nine grandkids, and I've been retired for six years after working for 38 years for the LDS Church Educational System. Awesome. So you have been immersed in this basically your whole life. Pretty much, yeah. That's awesome. So I guess that kind of follows up to my next question was, how did you get interested in Mormon history? Was there like a moment in time where you, I mean, I know you grew up in the church, but was there like an aha moment where you're like, wow, the history is really interesting? You know, I can't put my finger on a particular time. I just remember, well, I guess uh, my first year at college was at Utah State University. I did not go to BYU that first year. And uh, I didn't. I had that's never. Like, that's like heresy. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. Yes, yeah, especially <laughs> because my dad worked at BYU. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to be that close to home. Is reality. Uh, I had never liked history that much, but I, I took a class at uh, Utah State University on just American history and just loved it. And after that, got more and more involved with Mormon history. And my mom was quite uh, knowledgeable about uh, LDS history, and so that that got me going. Awesome. So now that you, now, so like now that you kind of immersed yourself with the Mormon history, you taught it for all those years. Now, how did you get interested in this book idea? Because I'm assuming, you know, in the LDS Institute, you're not talking about Oliver Olney very much. No, I never <laughs> talk about Oliver. Nobody ever talks about Oliver Olney. Yeah. What happened was uh, I got involved with the John Whitmer Historical Association and uh, made a presentation after I wrote a book comparing uh, the community of Christ with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I was invited out to do the author meets his critics, which was a, a frightening thing, but it, it turned out pretty good. So I went the next year and the, the Historical Association Conference theme for 2011 was uh, out of the one many, meaning that uh, it may have started with Joseph Smith, but there were a lot of different groups that evolved or, or came from those things, from Joseph Smith. So I was looking for a topic of, of somebody who 
began in Mormonism, but kind of branched out and did something else. And and I came across uh, Oliver Olney's name in uh, the uh, Times and Seasons. That's a Nauvoo newspaper, uh, 1842. Uh, he was mentioned in an article uh, as having been uh, kind of a, uh, become kind of an apostate or getting his own revelation that was uh, not in the you know, that didn't go along with what Joseph Smith was receiving. So I wondering, I was wondering, is there enough information to get a 15, 20 minute presentation out of this? Did a little research and found out that his writings, 470 pages, handwritten pages, were housed in the Beinecke Special Collections uh, Library at Yale. Wow. So I, I got access to those and I just started, uh, going through them, trying to read his horrendous handwriting. And uh, eventually I, w- I got enough information to get a presentation out of it, to make it, to present a paper. I presented the paper uh, at the John Whitmer Historical Conference uh, in Nauvoo, happened to be that year. And Greg Coford, who owns Greg Coford Books, was in the audience and came up afterwards and said, I, I want that whole thing. I want all of his writings to publish them. And so I said, okay, and I started working on that and had worked on it for years trying to get it done, and now it's out. That's awesome. So as you mentioned, not a lot of people really knew who Oliver Olney was, and you kind of told us a little bit about him. He's, an, he's a dissident, but can you tell us a little bit more, like, who was he? Why are his writings significant? Well, he, he joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints back in the Kirtland era, uh, I think about 1831. He was in Ohio at the time. And he moved after joining the church to Kirtland, Ohio, and became very, very involved. Uh, in fact, he, he kind of had a, a interesting relationship in, in that Alice Olney, or Alice Johnson, who he had married, is the sister of, of uh, Luke and Lyman Johnson, who were uh, two of the original 12 apostles for the LDS church. And uh, that means his father-in-law was John Johnson. That's in, in LDS circles. He's pretty famous for the revelations that were received on the John Johnson farm. Anyway, in, in Kirtland, he was involved. He became the president of the Teacher's Quorum there in, in Kirtland, uh, priesthood quorum of the Aaronic Priesthood. He then eventually moves to Missouri with his wife, goes through the Missouri persecutions with the mobs and different things that took place there and ends up with the rest of the saints in Illinois, in the Nauvoo area, and then is uh, living in Nauvoo for a time, and then goes on a mission back east to the East Coast. And while he's away, his wife, Alice, died uh, in uh, July 16, 1841. She passes away while he's away. So when he gets back, he discovers his wife has passed away. And uh, at that point, he becomes... Uh, a little disgruntled with what he views or what he perceives taking place in Nauvoo. And he starts, he starts writing, uh, keeping notes and writing a journal of, of things that he thinks are uh, out of line and what they should be with the church. Interesting. So he's, in his writings, there's a lot of basically why he's, why he's disgruntled with the church. Yes. Awesome. So what did, what or I guess not awesome that with that, but just because I'm sure it was heartache for his family, but awesome for history. I mean, so why did only grow to dislike the church leadership? Like what, what, like what crossed him the wrong way? I think first and foremost, uh, he was receiving his own personal revelations, 
And, and you know, uh, being familiar with the, the era of Kirtland especially, there were a lot of people, in addition to Joseph Smith and some of the other uh, church leaders who were getting their own personal revelations, uh, it seemed to be something that was, uh, you know, not frowned upon. But, you know, if, if people could receive personal revelation, that was a great thing. But his were not accepted uh, by church leadership. They they were very, very skeptical of the things he was receiving. And I think that initially bothered him greatly that, you know, other people might be accepted, but mine are rejected. In fact, he was he was called into what a, we would call a church court at that time, where they demanded his writings in the, in the sense that they, they said, we would like to compare these with scripture to judge whether what you're receiving is valid or not. And he said he refused to let them have his writings. Uh, eventually, he's called in again, and he, he loses his membership in the church. And he becomes quite bitter and then starts keeping a record of, again, the things that he thinks are wrong. Some of the other things he viewed as, um, you know, I, I think raised in that Jacksonian era, and, and he was a huge fan of Andrew Jackson. Um, he was all about you know, democracy and freedom. And, and now he belongs to this church where there's a hierarchy, uh, where the, you have a, a man who claims to be a prophet of God and is, says, you know, you need to follow uh, my, my you know, rule or what I'm saying along with the other leadership. And he, he viewed the leadership as, as pretty narrow. In other words, not very many were in that upper positions and the rest of everybody else were just the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the layman, and then you had just a few in power. I think that bothered him. I think he wanted to be in leadership positions. I think he felt left out. Uh, he had been in a leadership position in Kirtland, but that was the last time he served in leadership. He had two brothers-in-law who were in, in, the, in the Quorum of the Twelve in very high positions of leadership. So he was bothered by that. He was also bothered by his own personal poverty, uh, I don't know if he ever had a lot of money, but when he gets to Nauvoo, he, he is, he's poor. And he sees a lot of these uh, converts coming in from Great Britain and other places. And, and they've, they've spent all their money to get there. And they're pretty poor as well. And he, he views church leaders as living comfortably. Now, that's his view. I, I think if you look at church history, you find that some were doing okay and some were just as poor as he was. But he assumed that they were living off the tithing of church members, that church members were paying into the church and that church leaders were, in, in essence, skimming off the money coming in the, the, for the church funds. And, and so he, he saw the perceived, perceived prosperity among church leaders, and then he saw this poverty, and he th thought it was such a discrepancy that, that that made him angry. Plus, he believed that money that was being used was not being used wisely. He saw money coming in to build the temple in Nauvoo and the Nauvoo house. And he claimed in one of his writings, it should have been done long ago. And it still hasn't, you know, been built hardly at all. Where'd the money go? And again, he's assuming that church leaders are taking it. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So this is during the Nauvoo period where his writings, where he's writing all this. So right. what, what were his views about polygamy? Well, you know, it's, it's weird because when I first started uh, transcribing his journals, it, I thought, well, this guy really was very antagonistic towards polygamy. Now, he did not know for certain what was going on uh, in Nauvoo as far as polygamy or plural marriage was going, but he'd heard rumors. 
he had heard a lot of rumors. And so he just assumed that uh, those rumors were true. And to a certain extent, of course, he was he was right. They were true. And I thought he's very, very angry about this. He just thinks it's wrong. But later in his writings, he says some strange things about that the Lord has uh, has set aside some women for him. You know, his wife had passed away. He, at one time, he says he was supposed to uh, list 30 women. And then later, he was supposed to list 30 more. And he doesn't really say why, but you get the impression, at least I did, that some of these, at least, were he was interested in uh, as a wife. In fact, he he courted one of them for a while, and then they broke it off. But he eventually ended up marrying uh, one of the girls on his list. And and so I, I don't know whether he was really antagonistic towards plural marriage or whether he was just irritated that he had not been one of the inner circle that had been invited to to be involved in that. And he even said at one time, here he is, you know, a, a widower. And uh, he said, you know, here's these eligible girls or eligible for marriage. And yet they appear to be taken by guys who were already married. And that's really cutting down the dating pool for him. And that, that bothered him a lot as well. Oh man. Yeah. And what about masonry? Cause that was starting to come up with become popular in the church as well. Did, uh, did he have any views on that? He did. He he claimed that he didn't know much about masonry. In his writings, he said, I don't know whether masonry is a good thing or a bad thing. All he all he said was that the lodge that had been established in Nauvoo by church leaders, he felt was a very bad thing. Again, he saw elitism, where certain men were involved in masonry, but others were not invited. Uh, and and then he even saw the the uh, female organization of the church was created in Nauvoo called the the Relief Society, and he viewed the Relief Society as a female version of Masonry, and that, that seemed to rub him the wrong way as well. So again, he he I don't think he was antagonistic towards Masonry, but clearly antagonistic towards the the Masonic lodge that had been established in Nauvoo. Hmm. Interesting. So all this that you're talking about only is, I mean, like you said, he's in the middle of everything. Does he ever talk about how his, how his family, cause his family, I mean, his, his, uh, his in-laws were apostles. Does he ever talk about, you know, how they felt about his feelings or thoughts or conversations that he had with them? No, but not at all. He never mentions it. But by this time, both Luke and Lyman Johnson are out of the church as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They're, they're gone. That. Now, uh, Luke will come back eventually and, and end up uh, coming west with the saints in, to Utah, but Lyman never does come back. And I don't believe, I believe John Johnson, uh, Alice's uh, father, also dropped out of uh, involvement with the uh, Mormonism. Okay. So overall, what do you think Olney's descent reveals about Nauvoo Mormonism? Well, first of all, I, th- I think that... Uh, I, I I think that we see a discrepancy there in, in in the lifestyles of people and 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 he saw he saw this very troubling to him because he saw some wealth and some extreme poverty and I think he assumed that that was the problem of the church the, the leaders uh, again I, I think what we do see also is that even though plural marriage was supposed to be pretty much kept a secret at that time that it was not, as much of a secret as as the church leaders had hoped, that people were aware 
of at least they were aware of some things taking place. If they didn't have the details, at least they were aware that there's something going on here. Also, I think it wasn't just, you know, he became angry during the Nauvoo era. And then I think he started looking back. I don't think he was angry during Kirtland or Missouri, but when he started looking back, he, he thinks, you know, the Kirtland Safety Society Bank was a failure that the church had started. The saints had, were supposed to be, you know, set up Zion in Missouri. They were run out of Missouri. Uh, and then they were the, I don't know if you remember, you've heard of the Danites. Um, there was that uh, organization of, uh, of church members who were trying to protect people against the mob, but uh, they decided that the best defense was a good offense, and they started going on the offensive and doing damage to uh, people in in town. The the mob, or, or the even just the uh, citizens of the community, they'd burn they'd burn down barns and do stuff like that. When when they were discovered, uh, they were they uh, they were quickly dissolved. However, he still sees Danites in his mind. He sees the the Masonic Lodge as newfangled Danites is what he called them. Uh, and then there was the assassination attempt on ex-Governor Boggs from Missouri, uh, which uh, there, the accusation was that uh, Joseph Smith had hired that done or, or had ordered it done. There was no proof of that, but he he just, just assumed that uh, they were guilty. He and Orrin Porter Rockwell were absolutely guilty. Also, you know, with him... He, he viewed Joseph Smith as a fallen prophet, and he viewed himself as kind of the person who could fix things, correct things, and get them back on track. Interesting. Yeah, so I guess in, 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 you had talked about this too, and it's in the book. You know, he had writings that I guess he never really ended up publishing, but what did he want to talk about later in life that he wanted to talk about with Mormonism and kind of show the public? Well, his his uh, first of all his revelations were kind of interesting and he writes a lot about those in his journal he he talks about the ancient of days coming to visit him uh it it was 12 he said there were 12 men from old testament times 12 prophets in essence from old testament times who would come and visit him regularly and give him instruction as to what he was supposed to do to save the church from this bad road they were on, to to put them back on track towards what they were really supposed to be, uh, and and other things, you know, he, he Elijah would come to him, and Elijah's wife was with him, and uh, and lots of things like that. Uh, also, he was getting revelations that he was supposed to put the church in order, and in order to do that, he needed finances, and he was told that just up the Mississippi River. Uh, there was a place that had once been a, uh, a Book of Mormon community or city called Colion, where Nephite buried treasure was. And he was going to go get that. And that was going to help him finance his really the the revision of the restored church that he was supposed to fix. He, I think he saw himself initially as someone to correct some things. And then he got to the point where he's saying it can't be corrected I think I just need to start, in essence, start over and and uh, do this whole church again and, and make it a new church. He even had guys picked out that he wanted to be in leadership, which surprised me because the names he used were names of people who were, many of them who were already in church leadership. Some of the, some of the core of the 12 that I thought he disliked greatly, but I guess he was okay with a few of them and others he just greatly disliked. 
Oh, this, this is fascinating stuff, Rich. It makes me wonder why why was Oliver only looked overlooked for so many years? You know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, who knows why people are called in leadership positions and and others are not. Uh, like I say, he started out with a, a leadership role, but and and maybe there was something off about him. Certainly, after his wife died. He he kind of go, it appears to me that he kind of goes off the deep end. I have the impression that his wife was a real uh, strength to him. That she was kind of uh, the thing that kept him uh, involved and, and and kept him secure, uh, kind of an anchor to his soul in essence. Um, after she died, she must have been an incredible lady because when she passed away, Eliza R. Snow. Uh, who was a great poetess for the church, uh, wrote a beautiful tribute to her that was published in the Times and Seasons. And so uh, I don't know much about her, but I was impressed. I was impressed with what was written by Eliza R. Snow. And maybe just losing her just you know, caused him to kind of lose grip with what, was, uh, with what had started to be very important to him, and, and he kind of lost it all. Okay. So, but what about historians? Why do you think he's been overlooked by the historical crowd? Well, you know, first of all, I, I don't think his writings have been that, uh, readily available. That's one thing. I, there, I've In my research, I found a few people that came across his writings. Uh, there was one historian from Utah that found them there at Yale and, and wrote notes about them and put them in the files there. But other than that, no one really... That's what was stunning to me. No one really, you know, looked at for his stuff or found his things. And there's some things in there that are fascinating. For example, I had always believed that the uh, the early Mormons did not decide to go west until after the death of Joseph Smith, when they decided to leave Illinois and really travel out of the United States to the Rocky Mountains. But in 1842 only is claiming that they're talking about going to the Rocky Mountains already. Uh, he, 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 he makes it very clear. They're talking about sending a group there. They're talking about later everybody moving there. So that's, that's to me, was very interesting because they're, they're already discussing the move west, even when, while Joseph Smith was still alive. I guess the other thing is he's not in a leadership role, and he's not an important figure in LDS church history as far as you know, a major player. He's not a major player at all. And so I think as far as Mormon historians go, uh, you know, you look for the major players, the people who play a, a more important role. And I think sometimes uh, the, the writings of other people who either were minor characters or, or played almost no role at all are kind of negated. And I think that's where his were. He, he, he wrote a lot. In fact, he eventually published uh, two booklets, uh, the, um, let's see, uh, try the, let's see, the first one was called the, oh man, brain freeze. <laughs> you're gonna have, are you going to edit this out, Daniel? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. uh, the Absurdities of Mormonism was his first booklet. Uh, the Absurdities of Mormonism and the second book was called Spiritual Wifery, and he had both of those published. And by the way, both of those are in the appendix of, of my book in their entirety. 
Nice. Yeah, that's what's fascinating about it is that there's all these writings that he wanted to that he wanted to like put out to the public to like kind of expose Mormonism in a sense, but yet he was trying to fix it. It's just it's just fascinating stuff. He's he's a really interesting character that I feel like I'm just shocked that nobody had really talked about him until you. And we're in the 21st century. Well, and and I stumbled across him, so you know you you can't really, you know I, I wasn't blaming anybody. In fact, I'm thankful they didn't because I got to do it. But uh, you know he's just it was fascinating and and sometimes enlightening, but other times just confusing to read his writings. Uh, he he talks about the these uh, these twelve men living on the North Star. He talks about how many years are going to be left before the, the second coming. Uh, he's clearly a believer in Christ. Um, he, he, he never really trashes the book of Mormon. He, he seems to be a believer in that. It, it's almost as if, and, and it's, it's very common to, I think a few other people who, uh, left the church at that time, they see Joseph initially as the prophet of the restoration. But as time went on, they think he lost his place and, and, and something else needed to be done. In other words, they need to know, go in a new direction and not follow Joseph anymore, that fallen prophet thing. And that's that's pretty much where he was. Hmm. Interesting. So just more on a practical matter, what was it like editing or, you know, editing this work, you know, transcribing his writings? I mean, because you, you, you've written several books, Rich, and now yeah. this is a this is an edited volume. I guess, I'm just curious, like, was it harder than writing like a, a narrative book because you're editing those writings? Well, I thought it would be easier, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm saying to my wife, I'm not writing it. I'm just transcribing it. But first and foremost, his writing I mentioned was, was horrible. It was so hard to learn to read his handwriting, not only because the handwriting is bad, but because, you know, there's no, there's no uh, official way of spelling things at that time. There was no standardization in spelling. And so I would read things. It would take me sometimes uh, an hour and a half to two hours to get through one page. And then I would leave like 15, 20 blanks that I just I just couldn't read. Uh, but after practicing and going over it, I, I went over this thing six, seven times. I would eventually be able to see, oh, okay. Oh, I get what he's saying. I get what he's saying now. And so I would I would put that in. And I did leave, I, there are a few places, they're probably, in the whole book, they're probably maybe seven or eight places where I just put, I can't, I don't know what he was saying, <laughs> this, <laughs> this word. I'm not sure what it was. And and then, of course, uh, the, the other problem was I it, his, his writing was so bad. And so the, when I went through it, I added punctuation, I added capitalization, and, and I fixed some things so it would read easier. And when I turned it in to the publisher, they said, oh, we don't want that. We want exactly how it was. <laughs> so I had to go back through it again and unfix it to, <laughs> to, to make it uh, the way it originally read. So the punctuation is is not virtually non-existent. There's not much in it. And, and uh, you know, capitalization and things like that. He's, he's very inconsistent with a lot of things, in, including spelling. Sometimes in the same paragraph, he'll spell the same word three different ways. And uh, so that was kind of challenging. And then, of course, going through, and it's an annotated thing. So I had to go through and decide 
what needed to be footnoted. You know, if I found this person, I would try to find everything I could about that person and put it in a footnote. Uh, or when he talked about going up the river to a certain city, I'd try to find everything about where that city is located and what it was like during that time. And so I, I put all those things in the footnotes. And again, it was a new experience for me. It was, it was a new experience for me. It really was. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, it just seems like most of the people I talk to that do edited works, especially within Mormonism, they always say it's, it's just as hard as writing a regular book. And sometimes they say it's harder. So it's interesting to hear you kind of confirm that as well. Yeah. I, I think, uh, the, the last book I wrote before this took me about three years, but one before that I was able to do in, in under a year. This one took me, uh, five or six before it even went to the publisher. And then there had to be a lot of things fixed. And then when I thought I was done, uh, they said, well, we, we need an index. And I go, yeah, you need an index. They go, no, you need to do the index. And so it, it came back to me and I, I worked for weeks and weeks on, on coming up with a decent index. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And I just got to tell the uh, listeners, the, the introduction that you wrote is excellent. It's so well put together. The footnotes are excellent. They're very detailed. It's really a pleasure to read. To, 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 I mean, as you can see, just the, the, the topic alone is very interesting. Um, you see that Olney was very much a dissident. He had very interesting things to say. He has his own revelations. But uh, Rich, the footnotes that you did and the work that you put into it was excellent. I personally really, and I'm not just saying this because we're friends, I really enjoyed reading the footnotes and seeing the information that's there because it's just a treasure trove. Well, thank you so much. And and I was I was pleased with how the introduction turned out. Uh, initially, I wrote a, a, an article for the, uh, for the John Whitmer Historical Association uh, uh, Journal uh, and then I used that as kind of a guide and expanded it and, and did more research. And, and that turned into the uh, the introduction. But I was pleased with how the introduction turned out. So thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, Rich, I guess, and what, what are you working on now and what can we expect to learn from <clears throat> you in the future? Well, right now, uh, Dr. Alonzo Gaskill and I, he's a he's a professor at BYU and he's a good friend of mine. Uh, we've been working on something dealing with the the uh, writings of Joseph Smith. Of course, there are the Joseph Smith papers out there, but we're doing something a little different, and we've been working on that for a, a couple of years now, and that's still a couple of years away. But I think when it gets done, it's going to be uh, very worthwhile. I, I, I think it'll be a valuable thing to uh, Latter-day Saints who are, are used to the old uh, 1938 teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Uh, this will just uh, kind of go over that and give us the original or the earliest source. And we, we've been working on that for a while now. And and it's it's mostly done, but we're waiting for a few more Joseph Smith papers books to be published so we can make sure that we get everything correct. Other than that, I'm, uh, I you know, my dad passed away a few years ago. And before he did, he uh, wrote a little autobiography. Uh, and then I wrote the auto, the biography for my, my wife's dad. And after that, it was so hard. I thought I'm never going to do a biography or anything like that again, ever. But after my dad passed away, I kept thinking, you know, I wish I had more. I, I wish that, uh, I mean, he, I spent a lot of time with him before he passed and he told me a lot of stories, but I wish there was more written. And so I decided a couple of years ago, I'm going to write an autobiography 
and give it to my kids and grandkids at uh, Christmas time, uh, something they'll never ever read. But maybe, but maybe, maybe a great grandchild someday will read it. So, <laughs> so I, I've made it as fun as I can, so it won't be boring. You know, I've got a lot of stories just about you know dumb things from my life, but uh, the grandkids seem to like the stories, so I decide to publish that eventually. It's getting close. It's getting close. That's great. You're too humble. I'm sure they'll read oh, it. No, no, I, honestly, I don't think they will. Uh, maybe a couple of them will, but, uh, uh, you know, I have kids. I mean, you've talked about my other books. I think uh, my kids have typically not read anything I've written. You know, my, my oldest said to me one time, I started reading that one, but I got bored. So... <laughs> <laughs> You're the historian of the family, right? I guess so. I guess. So. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Rich, for talking to us about Oliver Olney. Again, I'm talking with Dr. Richard Moore. He wrote an excellent book or edited an excellent book called The Writings of Oliver H. Olney, published by Greg Coford Books. Again, it's a great book. It's a scholarly book, and it's an interesting book. So if you're interested in Mormon history, you definitely want to know who Oliver Olney is because now he's out of the bag. People know about him and he definitely has a lot to say. And it's a firsthand, you know, ground look, ground look um, perspective at Nauvoo Mormonism. And it's a it's a real treasure. And I just thank you, Rich, for doing this work. It's really it's really great. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks.